Hey everyone, before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the Blockworks Backrow YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. And if you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On The Margin. Today, I'm joined by my give you the adjective obstinate this morning mark because you just told me off air that you are not going to see the barbie movie not participating in the barbenheimer uh, um uh, phenomenon that's going on right now but i have seen oppenheimer and i i'm gonna push you to see it this week so we can talk about it on next week's round all right i i, I, I will go see i will definitely go see oppenheimer we want to do it we we just uh we did mission impossible first so which was was quite extraordinary i have to say. i think oppenheimer will be extraordinary in a different way all right, before we dive into all this good stuff, quick reveal, right? So, okay, yeah, I've got the Bitcoin orange pants, but I went old school, both on the shoes and the socks. Um, so some old school Nikes and uh, the original yellow logo for Bitcoin. Mm. Now, not to put any pressure on my friends from Mount Socks because they've been good to me over the years, but I've kind of worn out some of my socks. So I had to dig deep in the... Uh, in the drawer this morning went old school. Nice. Well, uh, hopefully some of the folks from Mount Sox are listening and maybe you can display some of that munificence that you've displayed to Mark in the past and fix this horrible sock situation that we've got going on. Uh, it's terrible. Actually, <laughs> anyway, it's cool. It's good, good. Right. Let's start with the macro because we had a CPI report and we had drops, dropped report as well. That was last week. So that came out halfway through uh, when we were recording, but I feel like it's still relevant. So let me just pull up this chart here. All right, so let's just talk about CPI and how it came in. This is basically every measure of CPI that you could possibly want. This is, you know, you've got uh, month over month, year over year, you've got core, you've got this new uh, super core measure. So essentially, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts were on the CPI, but it was a little bit of a nothing burger for me because it, it wasn't it wasn't really able to give me that much directional insight into where we're going here at basically slightly re-accelerated uh, on the month over month, but we expected that, right? And it kind of came in at 3.2, just below yeah. expectations of 3.3. Obviously, an enormous percentage of the year over year component of headline CPI is this shelter that we knew was going to lag anyhow, uh, which... which it's, it is a total nothing burger, Mike. Yeah. And, and it's because it's over. I mean, when was the last time you saw a story about inflation. When was the last time you heard people in the street talking about inflation? It, it's the boogeyman of the past. Mm. And, and you can see it in every one of those charts. It's it's all down and to the right. And, you know, the question, uh, we did our Around the World weekly show yesterday, and, and it's, it was an AMA because summertime, you know, everyone's on vacation and, you know, we decided we wouldn't prepare anything. We'll just answer people's questions. And, mm. Uh, someone threw out the question about, you know, hey, uh, is it is it time to start worrying about deflation? And I'm kind of there. I'm not quite there. Uh, the alligator jaws between stocks and long bonds are about as wide as they have ever been. You know, Nasdaq's up 32 and long bonds are down six. And, you know, there's this scare about, you know, long rates rising because of the treasury problems. And, you know, they're spending like a drunken sailor, literally like a drunken sailor. I mean, it's 2.3 trillion with a T of, of deficit spending that you got to finance. So I get the fear, but at the end of the day, um, you're not going to solve the issue of 10,000 of my brethren and sistren uh, every day for the next, you know, 11 years are going to turn 71 and a half. And that is a big deal. That is going to increase the demands on entitlements. It's going to increase the demands on kind of infrastructure to support the aged, uh, like healthcare. And it, it's just going to be, it's going to be a drag on productivity, a drag on economic activity, and, and quite honestly, it's, it's, it's very deflationary because yeah. old people buy bonds. That's, that's what they do. 
And I said, Rob Arnott has you know, written eloquently on this for years. Yeah. So, I, so I, I'm again, just I'll just set this question up for you, but I'm, I'm again torn by this because on the one hand, I can also look at these charts and see things trending in the right direction in terms of bringing CPI down. That being said, we still have to work through an enormous lag effect on shelter for headline and the super core measure of inflation, which is the new measure that apparently the Fed pays a lot of attention to. It's actually not trending as low as ultimately we want. We might want core is a little bit stickier. We sort of know this. That being said, it all looks like it's trending in the right direction. The other framework that I have in my head, though, is in the whole two data sets that we have to work with in the last century of inflation, which is the 40s and the 70s, it always tends to rear its ugly head. It has these periods where it looks like we've triumphed over inflation. It looks like the battle has been won. A white flag gets raised. Uh, we start to worry about deflation more than inflation, and then it rears its ugly head again. And then that second bout is when, man, just how how demoralizing is that for market participants, for workers, for the, the institutions that are trying to fight it? So that's that's the only I, I agree with you on all that, but that's the only other framework that I have. Yeah. Mind. Again, and and you know, I don't want to rehash this because we've done it on on other shows, and people should yeah. go back and, and watch those, but. I still make the case that pretty much most of that big hump yeah. um, from 21 is not inflation. It's currency devaluation. Mm. You say it's the same thing. No, it's not. It is not. Inflation is when excess demand raises price because of limited supply. That is not what happened. This was a supply shock. We locked down the world through stupid economic policies. And we used that as an excuse for the cult of Kelton to double the money supply. We doubled the number of dollars in existence in two years. That is, one, it's insanity. And two, it will devalue the currency. And it will devalue the currency so much that the chairman of the largest asset manager in the world will go on television and say, well, you know, you might want to pick up some Bitcoin in the ETF that we're going to offer to protect yourself against devaluation of the currency. Excuse me? Four years ago, this guy said it was a index of money laundering. Now he's telling people to buy Bitcoin to protect themselves against currency devaluation. It's, it's interesting to hear you talk about deflation because while I would say it's a little bit Premature. I don't know what your the conclusion that you came to on on your call yesterday, but yep. I think it's a little bit premature to be worrying about that in the U.S. You know where it is not too premature to be worrying about that is China. China is in a it, there's a sort of a tale of two cities that's going on here. So our monetary policymakers have not been synced up between the Fed and the PBOC, which they were back in the the financial crisis in 08 and 09 when, yeah. in your words, China saved the world by injecting. You know, trillions of, of dollars of liquidity. Four of those babies. Right. So what's going on right now in China is sort of intense deflation, actually. So um, consumer prices are actually declining 0.3% while we're getting stubbornly persist, uh, persistently stubborn, uh, you know, three plus percent inflation. They're actually declining. And this actually came after the PBOC broke ranks with the Fed earlier this year. It was injecting stimulus into the economy at the same time that we were going through withdrawal. Yep. So, Mark, I, I mean, what, what's going on over in China? What do you make of that? Uh, well, you know, they have a demographic problem that's even, you know, more acute in the short term, not as acute in the long term, but definitely more acute the uh, wrong way in the short term um, than than we have. And you know, the one child policy definitely created this, you know, aged population issue. And uh, that that's certainly part of it. Another part of it is entirely um, intentional in the sense that um, you know, China is, is really good at uh, busting the back of trends that would harm their long-term plans, right? So when, when things that, that rise up, whether it's, you know, fast acceleration of home prices or uh, employment issues or, um, you know, trade issues, 
they're really good because they are command and control economy as opposed to a pure democracy and they don't wait around and you know they can withdraw stimulus from the economy much faster they can inject stimulus into the economy much faster and uh, they had a real real estate bubble you know financed by by debt arguably as big as the japanese bubble in the 70s or the us bubble in the, the 20s and there were a lot of pundits who were saying you know they were going to hit the wall would no skid marks like the U.S. did in the 30s and like Japan did. Uh, I mean, Japan still to this day is not back to its all-time high in the market. You know, 40,000, we're at 32,000 now or 33,000. So, you know, 30 some odd years later. And I think that's that's part of what happened. They, they did lead with uh, a big injection almost a trillion bucks last October. And if you look from that injection, that was the inflection point in risk assets around the world. Again, China saves the world. Uh, now that growth of money supply has been shrinking. Uh, they went after. And actually, I was surprised by this. They actually took down a couple of the big real estate conglomerates that were all part of the party, right? The way it worked was, you know, Mike, you're a you're a fine, upstanding member of the party, and I deem that that you should receive through an auction. Like, where's the auction? If I've already decided you're going to get it, some land, and then you mark that land up and you sell it to some developers who pay you some uh, tribute, shall we say, uh, to have the uh, ability to. Uh, buy that land, and then they use some government contractors to build the, the apartment buildings, and and the corruption you know continues. And it's no different than the corruption in India and the corruption in the United States. It's but it, it's it's definitely a system. And um, I was surprised they they took you know Evergrande and and a couple of these other guys down. And I think that I think that is is part and parcel of of what's. Uh, particularly driving the, the PPI to these levels. So so I really like your point and I wanna underscore it that, so Leland Miller, the, the founder and CEO of the China Beige Book has been on the program a couple of times and has discussed- Love him. The, he's great, yeah. One of the just different dynamics in between China and the US is that China is much more of a command control economy. So especially like a great example of that is in financial stresses over in the US, there is an immense focus on counterparty risk, right? This is one of the big problems with the great financial crisis of we didn't know whose debt was good and everyone stopped trusting their counterparties. And that's a great example of a problem that doesn't really exist in China because that gets solved by the government saying you lend to you. <laughs> no counterparty <laughs> risk. <laughs> but there, there, are, there are pros and cons to that approach. So let's zoom in a little bit on the CPI number here. So you might notice we're looking at a chart here of China consumer and a C uh, CPI and PPI, we've also broken it out between core and headline. The reason headline is negative is because of two categories, mostly, which is transportation and food. So pork prices are down 26% year over year. If you ignore transportation and food, then inflation is slightly positive at 0.8%. Yeah. Now, from the perspective of a Chinese citizen, it doesn't seem bad that food prices and transportation prices are going down. You probably want that, right? That's probably a great example of a command control economy type outcome. The other side of that though, is foreign investment in China is falling off of a cliff. Yep. So this is, this is the other side of the ledger of that decision because I think a lot of investors looked at the way that China treated Jack Ma and I, you may, maybe folks on this call remember a, a little company called Ant Financial that was going to be one of the largest IPOs ever that got scuppered like that. Mm -hmm. So something that Jack Ma said, and China essentially made the decision to take their own tech sector to the woodshed. And, you know, maybe some folks over in the U.S. are looking at that and saying, hey, maybe that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. The, the other side of the ledger, though, that balances that action out is that investors do not want to invest in something that can get seized the next day. So... I'm not, you know, I don't have a great framework for how important this is to China's economy, but it's definitely not a nothing burger if global investors do not want to 
put money. Yeah, in. there's there's a there's another subtle piece to this, and and I agree with with all that analysis. But the other subtle, maybe not so subtle piece, is that that rapid decline is is the result of Cold War 2.0. It's the direct result yes. of blacklisting companies and industries and basically saying to people, if you uh, don't take your people out of China, we will arrest them, right? You know, if you've got a U.S. citizen working in a Chinese company, you know, you're, you're in trouble. And look, this whole Cold War thing, it's funny. We as we always do, because we're, you know, the ugly Americans. Uh, I was, you know, I joke, Americans think, or they're like Notre Dame football fans. They remember a past that never was. And uh, we think we're causing this through tariffs and these rules. Okay, yeah, fine. But wait a minute. Despite all the tariffs, despite all the blacklisting, we imported more goods from China last month than any time in history. Okay. So mm. despite all of the rhetoric, despite all of the uh, rules and, and the, the fees, yep, we still like buying cheap stuff, it turns out. So the, the other side of this is to build up that manufacturing capacity uh, since WTO, China needed a lot of capital. And they need a lot of capital from the world and they needed people to invest and build the factories. And, but, but here's the interesting thing. So uh, you got, you got COVID lockdowns. Everybody hates China. Uh, Everybody wants out of China. So what do they do? They literally, literally abandon factories, move them to Vietnam, move them to Cambodia. And so this little company, Sheen, um, says, I'll take that. I'll take that. So they take these factories and they overlay some amazing tech where they introduce 5,000 new SKUs every day. Just let that sink in for a second. 5,000 new products ready to ship every single day. Mm. They cut the price to levels that you can't imagine and they are destroying Zara, H&M, um, you know, any of the trendy brands around the world, destroying them. And that business now is direct to consumer. They've taken out the middle people. They don't need any direct investment. They are, because their plan, this is the interesting thing, the plan for the next 30 years adopted two years ago is self-reliance. It's the stated plan of the Chinese party to be self-reliant in everything. And this is part of this whole deglobalization. And I don't like it at all because globalization, Adam Smith was right, globalization is better, comparative advantage is better. But it's actually not complete deglobalization. It's de-westernization. Their alignment with everyone in the East, all the way up to Russia, is accelerating. It's accelerating at a rate that we can't even comprehend. You know, they bought all the ports in Greece and they bought all the assets in Africa and they did relationships in India and they bought all the stuff in Pakistan and they, you know, cut the deal with Russia. And so they're, they're recreating the Silk Road and... They don't need the FDI the way they used to because they got enough stuff. Yeah. And so it's it's just interesting, except in places where they want to let it happen, like Tesla's factory. You know, 60% of the Teslas sold in the world are made in China. Six zero. Okay? They're not made in Fremont, California. Some are, but 60%. And that factory's only been up for two years. Fremont's been up for almost 10. So it's where they want relationships, they get them. And the biggest one, and the one that we're going to be talking about for the next decade, 
is in chips. And yeah. China is slowly building up capacity in the non-micro no five nanometer, three nanometer in China. But for the 9, 11, 13, I don't, I don't know what the other big numbers are, but these big chips that go into cars and sensors, they're going to make them all. And so this is the plan. And said we can't even think in four-year cycles in America. They think in 30-year cycles in China. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. So you know I'm talking to you later today is Neil Howe. Uh, he's gonna, that's going to be the On The Margin interview episode next week. Wow. And I've thought a lot about this because he is sort of the master of this idea of generational forgetting and, you know, 90 to 100 year cycles and turnings. Yeah. And a lot of his work has to do with differences in between generations. And you can see this playing out, right? Like, it's kind of that quote about, you know, hard times or bad times make hard men, hard men make good times, good times make soft men, soft men make bad times. So just let's just play this out over, over the last 100 years or so. Horrible conflict, World War II, right? Everything goes to crap. Uh, and then in, in the wake of that, you get huge change that paves the way for the last 80 or so years of prosperity that we've all experienced. And you get this hardened kind of GI, GI greatest generation that comes back, they all banded together, they cleaned up the world, they put the Nazis in their place, and they built these institutions. Then you can imagine... They're kind of hard people. You know, my grand my grandpa fought in World War II. God bless him. He's an amazing guy. He was a little severe, you know, compared to other people. Yeah, they're they're guys. tough. They're tough SOBs, man. As you would expect, right? So then the the children of that demographic grow up, and they're like, why are you so scared? And you get the hippies, right? There's a direct reaction to that. And then you know they grow up, and they and you 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 kind of forget. You, you pass out of, out of time, it's like generational forgetting, just how bad it can get. And how do you end up dealing with that? Because on the one hand, you can make the you, you, know, you can make the argument that you shouldn't be so severe and so there's not going to be a World War II tomorrow. You probably don't need to be quite that severe. But I just feel like I just feel like that's how these things perpetuate because now we haven't there's a whole sense the people that are in charge, the boomer demographic, actually grew up with this sense of actually okay and i don't think there's a great understanding and sense of how bad it can be and get and i don't know i don't know how you fix that i don't know maybe that's why these cycles just tend to repeat and there's no there's no salve to augment that, that no, the, the, the 90 the 90 year cycles it just is and it's exactly as you described it you can't you can't stop it because you can't change the accumulation of 90 years of memories and history and, and, and to your point, softness. Um, and when things are good, it's, it's easy to get soft, right? I mean, yeah. it's easy. And when it's hard, you know, when you're building something, you know, I actually just sent it to, to my inbox uh, to listen to, uh, maybe over the weekend, but you know, um, you and Yano did the the origin story, the early days of of, of Blockworks, the early days of starting things. They're hard. Yeah, I mean they're hard. They don't feel hard actually when you're doing it because you're just doing it. And you know, I remember you know leaving the the safety of the university to. 
because look, if you work for a university, basically short of committing a felony, you got a job for life, right? I mean, it's it's a great safe. Now they don't pay as well as as the private sector, but but it's a great place. Yeah. And I loved every minute of it. But stepping out of that safe world into I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur, but um, you know, building Morgan Creek, it was it was an entrepreneurial venture and it was hard. And I do remember, I do remember one, I don't know if you guys had this or not, but three years in, I remember looking at, at my partner going, what the hell did we do? We're, we're not going to make it. I mean, th- this is just not, this is not happening. And because we had this early wave of success, then there was just like this, this flat line. And it was like the old adage, which again, my wife hates, but uh, if a man says something in the force, there's not a woman there to hear it. Is he still wrong? I mean, we were talking and no one was listening. And it was it was hard. And uh, but we got through it. And uh, we have lots of other hardships along the way. Um, but it's it steals you and makes you better. Uh, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. All the things that, you know, all the all the things that were said 2,600 years ago are true. <laughs> they just get repeated every 90 years. Uh, and then codified into books and put on Audible, and people think they're new. Um, they're not new. Yeah, I agree with that. It's the way I would describe it is it's kind of looking a maker in the eyes, right? I've done that multiple times with blog groups. So I've been very concerned, and it's yeah. It, out of I was just listening to an episode with Neil describe this, and I've seen this happen at a microcosm. He what he described was that you would think that every time big, if you look back at big societal changes, and, and most of the really good ones, they don't come at a time when it's sunny. They come at a time of crisis. And he said that would be surprising, but that isn't surprising to me, actually, because you know when things are good, you're like, don't kill the golden goose. You know, It's working, clearly. Amen. But, you know, but when Amen. things are not going well, you know, it's all hands on deck. And hey, and it forces you to just look directly at these problems that you yeah. know. Yeah. Well, it, we've, we've talked about this on, on, on lots of examples of times like now, right? Post bear market crashes, post economic contractions. No, there was no recession. Yeah, there was. We had a little tiny shallow recession last year, 2022, you know, and, and now we're, we're over it. But in those post difficult periods, the best companies are formed, the best opportunities, the best investments, and so this vintage of venture capital, for example, is going to be one of the best in the last 20 years. And I'll give you an example. I met with this, this uh, founding team and they have uh, the short version of a long tail is the world is digitizing, right? Everything is going digital and, and, and computing is getting pushed further and further from data centers into everywhere into, you know, everyone's got the ring doorbell that's, you know, computing so you can see what's going on. And there's going to be computers all over your car so it can drive itself. And there's going to be computers in in doorways so they open for you so you don't have to, you know, everything's going to be. But it turns out to do that, you need, you need speed. Well, speed, microprocessors, you know, Moore's Law, it just means, oh, we'll just put more stuff in the little tiny microprocessor. Well, when you do that, like if I feel my laptop, it's hot. <laughs> it just gets hotter and hotter. And physics says at some point, you just can't dissipate the heat. So what do they do? They liquid cool, right? Supercomputers, you know, they dunk them in liquid nitrogen. It's like that seems really expensive and not very practical. Can't carry that around. Um, if I spill it on somebody, it'd hurt. So what happened? They, they said, well, wait a minute. Why don't we make some of the compute that doesn't need to be on all the time, like a security camera, where it only needs to work when somebody walks through its field of vision. Well, I change that back to analog. And I'm like, oh my God. Okay. Um, well, why don't, why don't the big companies do this? And I'm like, are you joking? If they did that, then they'd sell less microprocessors. So NVIDIA is never going to do that. I'm like, oh my God, that's how incumbents lose. Because the, the upstart, because of a, a difficult time or a difficult problem, steps back and says, there's a different way to do this. And I, I use the example, look, ABC, NBC, CBS, they had it all. 
they had all the content, they had my eyeballs, they had everything. And they lost it to Netflix because they wouldn't give up the good to go for the great. And they were so greedy. I think it comes down to greed, fear and greed. They were so greedy, they didn't want to lose what they thought they had and they gripped it tighter. And you know what happens every time you do that. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful cycle. That's really great. I mean, I'm glad that that incentive structure exists because otherwise the incumbents would just say the incumbents forever, there'd be no opportunity. There's a great, I saw this, I actually saved it. I saw it this week. I, I, you know, I'm a sucker for the Greeks and there's this great quote from Aeschylus, who is a, a great tragic playwright. Nothing forces us to know what we do not want to know except pain. And I think that is Oh, I love that. I think that is the most accurate quote oh, ever. It's yeah. so true. No, look. Oh man, that is so true. So true. Yeah. So I, I wonder in that in that vein, I, I said we're gonna start with macro and then I wanted to present this period of time. So if you're a listener of macro podcasts, you've probably heard many comparisons to the nineteen seventies in the US, the nineteen forties. You know, if you're more politically minded, people like to draw analogies to rise of Nazi Germany and Hitler, and are we seeing a rise in fascism? Let me give you another historical period that I think would be worth looking back at, which is the revolutions of 1848. And the reason I want to bring this up is it is a period of time where there was this revolutionary fervor in Europe, and a lot of regimes were toppled, and monarchies were, you know, sort of questioned and pushed back again. There was some revolution that was successful, the vast majority of which were not. But the thing that made it unique is that people didn't and still don't have really a great understanding of what caused it and what the revolutions even really wanted. And part of what makes it interesting, so this is coming after, right, many years after, this actually originated in Sicily, is where the revolutions begun, but it sort of initiated this chain reaction throughout all of Europe, and then it spread to Austria, France, etc. And what was unique about this period of time is that the the monarchies and the governments in this period of time weren't actually particularly repressive. This didn't come at the Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake. They were actually, by and large, relatively good. And But it, there was this just chain reaction of stuff that started. And it... What it reminds me of now, this is kind of the birth of nationalism, what, what ended up coming out of yep. this birth of nationalism yep. in Europe. And the reason it reminds me of this period of time is there's an immense feeling of dissatisfaction in the U.S. right now. But I think if you objectively looked at the standard of living and people's lives, I don't actually know what period of time that you could point to and say it was better than this. And that dissociation for me, I think, is yeah. worth digging into because I don't know if this is one of these relative things where you know young people don't see the path. Uh, everyone has their own boogeyman and, and particular explanation for why people feel the way that they do right now. But that was a hallmark of the 1848 revolutions is that there were a thousand mini revolutions and they all... It wasn't just one unified, this is what we want. There were a bunch of small dis dissatisfactions that bumped up against each other and almost caused this chemical reaction and explosion into semi-successful but largely in unsuccessful revolutions in, you know, with the benefit of hindsight. And I just feel like I was listening to an episode on this and I ordered, ordered a book about it, uh, but it just reminded me vividly of the current period that we're living through. So... Uh, no, absolutely. And and again, if you if you go back in the the 90 year cycle that you and Neil are going to talk about. So, you know, we had the 1930s. OK, that was 90 years. And then before that, we had the 1840s. This played out in the United States. We had the worst depression in the history of the country until the Great Depression, which edged it out in the 1840s. And then you go back before that in the 1750s, and you'll find a similar period that, that you describe. And couldn't agree more that it's hard to imagine a time of, of greater prosperity broadly. And you say, but, but, you know, there's 44 million people on food stamps and there's, you know, 40 some odd million people on disability. Yeah, true. But for the balance of, you know, 
the people in, in the country, you know, things are touch wood pretty good. And now you can say, but, 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 but it's, it's not like it was when I was young. Right. Cause that's the nature of, of aging is, you know, you remember a past that never was and, and you, you think back more favorably on, on the time that you remember and, 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 but it's like young, young people say that too, Mark, that don't have that memory. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Young people, look, the humor of Gen Z, right, is, first of all, I find it hilarious, but it's extremely black, very dark humor about, you know, dystopia and, you know, yeah. nothing really matters. It's very nihilist. And that flavor, I think, it definitely extends to older generations that have memories of a different time, but baked into the youth. I think, as well. I, you know, I, as you say that, I'm, I'm going to posit a theory, making it up as we go along, that that's because of media, not not social media. I mean, that has its own demons, but but so many books are dystopian. So many you know TV series are dystopian. I mean, it seems like I can't turn on something on Netflix or Hulu without it being a rehash of the dystopian future and. And, you know, Last Kids on Earth, the book ruined my 12-year-old, the whole zombie thing, apocalypse thing. Um, and I don't mean ruined him like forever, but just like, scared him. I mean, I was like really scary stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we thought it was such, you know, good, you got all these awards and like, no, it, it's kind of scary. Um, and, you know, there's this other, there's this other series I was watching with him as this kid who's like purple and living in the underground. And I can't remember the name of it, but all of this stuff is, is there right in front of your eyes. And, and you're just being constantly bombarded all throughout your childhood. This generation has been bombarded with, you see, it was like, you know, I grew up with, you know, I won't call them happy necessarily all happy you know, Gilligan's Island, right? The the idea, shipwrecked. These these seven people were shipwrecked, but they had a great life. They 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 made do and they were creative. Or the Brady Bunch, the idyllic family. Well, except the parents were divorced and they came together. And but but there were, you know, and then you got the whole band, you know, the whole Disney thing where everyone's single parent household and you know, troubles and the evil person. But it wasn't as in I don't think, I don't think it was as in your face as as today and so i i just think it's it's easy to slip into that into that darkness maybe that's just one theory it could could be total bullshit but hey everyone we'll get back to the show in a minute but just wanted to let you know that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's going to be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. Now, you've heard me say this many times on our show before, but the time to be bearish on crypto was 18 months ago when the Fed began raising rates. Since then, our entire market is down more than 50%. We've had all this bad news. In the last two weeks, we had BlackRock and a whole slew of other institutional invest investors file for a Bitcoin ETF. This space is not going anywhere. So if you're interested in investing in this space at all, I highly recommend that you attend this conference. The other thing, and I've said this before as well, brand market conferences are the best ones. In the fall market, you have all this retail, all this noise. Now you only have the people that are really here building great products. This one is worth your time 100%. And since you are such good listeners to On Margin, which I really appreciate, giving you all a special 30% discount code. It is Margin30. Now you can access that by clicking the link in the bottom of the show notes. So you can see my fingers pointing down, click that link. Because you are a listener of On The Margin, you get 30% off to the conference. Again, the code is Margin30. We'll see y'all there. Yeah, I I don't think it's bullshit. I think in general, the way media works, you know, we talked about this a little bit. I've always pushed back on this idea, you know, you often hear, oh, this agenda that's being pushed through media. That's just not my experience with how media actually works. I think media is a mirror for society. It might be a distorted funhouse mirror, but it's a mirror. And what media generally tries to do is to get a sense of what people care about and want to read. And it has to start with demand. It has to start with what people want. And then there is this self-reinforcing cycle that kicks in because people want, have a certain viewpoint, and this is the type of content they want to consume. 
media produces more of that, and then you do get these reflexive feedback loops that kick in. But it can't come from the media; it's not the originator. Usually, I think of the of the of the old. No, the government's the originator. Don't don't ever forget that. Probably, yeah. I mean, so I I don't have a great sense, but I, you know, it's it's just a mark of our times, right? That I'm almost even worried about saying on a podcast like things aren't that bad, right? Because you know, a million people are going to come back to how how insensitive is that? No, I just think about it objectively. You know, I live in this period of time. I think about it. What if I had lived in other periods of time? I mean, my God, go back to World War II when they were creating the atom bomb. And here's here's a here's a fact for you: when they tested the first atom bomb, they there was a distinct possibility that a chain reaction was going to happen that would light the entire atmosphere of the of the world on fire, Mark. And they still detonated this bomb. They still it detonated it. Gives you a sense of, I mean, Jesus. So that's one. But two, you know, people mock the youth of today, yada, yada. Back at that period of time when we were facing an existential threat over in Europe, there was a communist party of the United States. I mean, you know, members of colleges, both the, the staff, you know, faculty and students, we're all card-carrying members. That was Oppenheimer's big problem is that he wasn't even a part of this group, but he was sympathetic to it. And yeah. and then the Cold War that, that happened, and you were worried about news cool. getting dropped on your head every day. How could you possibly say that now is worse than then? I just that's that's what I'm trying to get at here. Is there's well, a I, I, I've talked about this many times, right? People say, I hate paying taxes, taxes is theft. It is fine, but here's the thing. When I go to sleep at night, I don't have to worry about Scud missiles flying over my house. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that. I am. And someone say, oh, well, that's just the logistics of the U.S. and the oceans. Maybe. But Canada could still send a, a missile if they wanted. Hopefully they don't have very many. Um, but in parts of the Middle East, you don't have that luxury. And so, yeah, um, there are lots of places around the world where times are hard, hard, hard. Like, you know, don't have food to eat, you know, don't have infrastructure, you know, plenty of places. Look, what's the number? Three billion people on the planet don't have electricity, continue, you know, constant, continuous electricity. Um, and so, yeah, I, I got the lucky, you know, lucky egg club. Um, to, to be born here and, and not there. Um, but even in those places, there's been dramatic improvements over the course of the last couple hundred, but really the last hundred years. What's amazing, I'm, I'm actually doing a presentation later today to the, the Duke Blockchain Club. And uh, part of my presentation is, is this, it shows the acceleration of technology over the last hundred years. And, and it is truly an exponential curve. It's not, it's not linear. And the thing about exponential growth is, is the human brain can't handle it. Okay, right? we, can't, we can't understand and appreciate it because you, know, you, can't, you can't believe that if I could fold a piece of paper 30 times, so I'm doubling something 30 times that that would reach to the atmosphere of the earth. Like, that's not true. Like it is. And like, but you only doubled 30 times. Like, yeah, but just do the math. And what's, what's happened over the last hundred years is extraordinary, right? From electrification of homes to satellites, to the internet, I mean, that is an exponential growth. I mean, think about the days where people hadn't seen an ocean. I can click a button on my phone and see a picture of the ocean live with a, with a live cam. What about Forget flying it. in an airplane? Yeah, or flying in an airplane. Yeah, that, that's unbelievable too. I mean, truly unbelievable. Every time I get in an airplane, I'm like, that's just not... It's just not possible that that works. But, but my point there is that um, even in the places where it's the darkest, there's been massive improvements. 
And, you know, China's a good example. China's taken 700 million people. It's a big number, right? 700 million out of abject poverty, like yeah. mud huts and, and, you know, not no running water to middle class. Now, their version of middle class and our version of middle class is a little different. It's not the white picket fence and two cars in the garage. and um, But it's an apartment and a phone and an air conditioner and, and a you know pretty decent life, a job. And um, that advancement of, of humanity leads to innovation. And, you know, the reason I wear the orange pants every Friday is that innovation, right? The innovation around blockchain technology, which I believe is the operating system for this Web3, the internet of everything, and Bitcoin in particular, what it what it does, and 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 people don't appreciate this, and even when I say it, I don't really appreciate it. But we're going to liberate. When I say we, I mean collectively, all the people working on on this project, we're going to liberate seven trillion dollars of frictional cost in the trust industry, right? Like if I transfer money to you, someone has to account for it. Someone has to audit it. Someone has to physically do it. All that's going to go away. And that $7 trillion will do exponential good to the world. And so what's going to happen over the next 100 years, this is a crazy stat, technology and productivity and, and quality of life, are going to increase 50 quintillion times. That's nuts. And you're like, no, that's not possible. It's just the math. And the things that we can't even comprehend are going to happen. And, and I don't mean that in, in, a, in a silly way. I mean it in a, in a positive, you said, optimistic kind of, beautiful way in that the most powerful force in the world is human creativity. It just is. And sometimes it comes out of necessity. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. Sometimes it comes out of stress, right? You're, you're, you are being attacked and you have to be, have a creative solution. Sometimes it comes out of the luxury of, hey, I have comfort. I can sit and think. We just did a one of the, I mean, other than our weekly podcast, one of the best podcasts I've, I've ever done, we have a, a venture partner for Morgan Creek, that uh, Morgan Creek Digital, Scott Stornetta. And Scott, right, he is the co-creator of blockchain technology. And he told the origin story of how he and his partner, Stuart Haber, visioned, envisioned blockchain. And he had left uh, Palo Alto Research Center Park and moved to Bell Labs uh, on the East Coast, which, again, most people have no idea who Bell even is, right? Ma Bell, the original telephone company uh, before AT&T. And, um, and their lab has created so many things that we all take for granted in this. It's like, he said, it was like walking into the future every day. Like, how cool is that, right? Living in a future that was going to happen 15 years later. But when he, when he walked in his first day, he, he went up to his boss and he says, you know, what should I work on? He says, you should take six months and think about what you want to work on. What? What? Who, who says that? Who, I mean, what boss is, here's the to-do list, get these grunt work things done. And he's like, no, no. And he said, I got to read for six months, all this stuff. And, and, and long story short, he said, it just came to me one day. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Night Shift. It's a, you know, kind of a crappy movie. It's, it's it, Henry Winkler, the Fonz and um, Michael Keaton. Yeah. And uh, it's actually a decent movie. I mean, it was good. But there's this scene. So Michael Keaton is this 
really wild, kind of not so bright guy, but he's an idea guy. And he walked around the tape recorder. He's always talking things. And, and he's talking to Henry Winkler one day. They work in a morgue. And that's, that's the whole, the funny part of the story. And he says, ideas, they're always coming at me. I, I can't stop them. And I had that vision of this is, you know, Scott Stornetta, who is the most buttoned up person. He wears a tie more often than Julian Robertson. I mean, he's wearing a tie for our podcast and I'm looking slovenly. And he, he said, I just had this thought that, you know, we spend all this time putting data into blocks and arranging it and structuring it and, and taking care of it. And, and that's how computing works that I had this idea that we could chain them together. Like what? What? And anyway, so it, it is incredible. But it, it was because, I mean, partly he's a super genius, and, but, but it was because he had the freedom and the luxury and a time in history in the you know, late 80s that was prosperous, and he had the, the, the gift from his boss to say, take time and think. Yeah. And I actually have a, in my desk drawer in my office, my wife made it for me. It's a, it's a little cross-stitch thing, the word think, right? Which was the mantra of IBM in the early days of IBM Labs, who invented much of you know, core computing. And that was their mantra. They put above everybody's door, think. And you're supposed to, you know, kick back, put your feet up and think, what are you doing? I'm working. No, no, you're not working. You're not doing stuff. No, I'm, I'm working. I'm doing the good work, the real work, the ideation, the, and one last thing. So we've all heard of, of the Eureka moment, right? Where you're in the shower and all of a sudden you, you have this great idea. Well, why? Well, it's because you were thinking about a hard problem before you went to bed. You went to bed. You stopped thinking about it. You think you stopped thinking about it. But your brain, subconscious, it's the most powerful supercomputer in the world. There's nothing in the world of computing even close, like even scratching the surface, all this AI discussion, not close to the subconscious of the human brain. It is. It is amazing. I agree with you. I think, honestly, you know what? We should wrap it there because this is a great moment. Everyone should take a moment. This coming week, this weekend, this coming week, just take some time to think. And I think that's the most positive message we've ever put out work. So I applaud both of us here. We're having a sunny Saturday uh, this time. We can. Uh, we did. We did have a sunny Saturday. Not one yeah. mention of the word sinister. I love it. No, absolutely not. Best hour of my week, my friend. I will see you here. Same time next week. All right. Have a good one.